Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast, produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. In this episode of the Short Fuse podcast, we are exploring dance with the choreographer and dancer, Stephen Petronio. Dance is perhaps the least understood of the arts, defined possibly in a nod to simplicity as movement of the human body through space and time. Three-dimensional, like sculpture, factoring in shape and rhythm. Where would film, opera, performance, music, even the visual arts be without understanding the landscape of the arts through the lens of the choreographer. Stephen, it's lovely to be in conversation with you today. You too. I love talking to you and I'm glad we're here. How does it feel to be rehearsing with your company again now in a real studio? Ah! I believe I believe you were in on a tour in Ohio in, in March 2020 when you were shut down. Yeah, well, let me say how good it feels before I talk about the trauma of last year. Uh, you know, so I've been up in Round Top with the company, Stephen Petronio Company's retreat, Petronio Residency Center, and kind of hiding for the last, you know, couple of years, year and a half, bringing dancers up to work in bubble residencies. And I brought my company up four or five times to work. At, in, intermittently, every couple of months, we would get together. And it was essential, but not daily practice. If anybody knows anything about any craft, a daily practice is very, very important. And when it involves your body, it's essential. Anyway, at the end of the day, we started on Monday. And I, so I drove in. I've been two or three times in the city, but mostly I've been up here. I drove in. I walked from where I'm staying on 95th Street to the Barishnikov Art Center in the 30s. And I got on the elevator, showed my thing, my ID card and my vaccination card and got on the elevator, which was, you know, haven't been on an elevator in a while, went up to the sixth floor and I walked into the John Cage Merce Cunningham studio. And for anybody who knows that studio, it's got brilliant views of Southwest Manhattan. Beautiful. And just to be up on six floors, I mean, it sounds really pathetic, but it was really so thrilling. When I brought my dancers up to the country, it was amazing, but there was only six of us because everybody scattered in different directions, so we lost a few. Well, all nine of us were back together and putting together a work that we made several years back called American Landscapes. And watching those, I mean, all of us were crying, watching those dancers do what they can do in a space that was meant for dance in such a beautiful way. It was just, I mean, really, it was overwhelming. And we were all in the best mood all week. It was like heaven, really. In the limited edition book you published during the pandemic, In Absentia, with diary-like fragments and reflections, on August 14th, you wrote, the effects of shelter in place are like a prison sentence to a dancer, reduced range and endurance, truncated pathways, stiff ankles, and vague control of a usually fine-tuned instrument, loss of strength and diminished aerobic capacity. There is an odd hesitancy, insecurity born from simply not doing that thing that is second nature. 
thought that was an apt description. Yeah, you know, we take it for granted. And what's, look, for whatever happened, so there's so much pain and horrendous things going on in the world. To lose the ability to do what you were born to do and what your craft is, we live to move and we live to make together. And to have that torn away from you, I know many, many people have experienced it on many different levels. It's just gutting. I don't know. I just, I'm very newly grateful for every step I take. Stephen, when did you know that you were a dancer and wanted to become a choreographer? I took my first dance class at Hampshire College in Amherst. And I took it because some woman I was chasing in my, in those first weeks of school was a dancer and we were going to parties and she was like, you know, you're pretty good. You should take a dance class. I had been the vice president of my drama club. So I was acting in high school, but I was very unphysical in that way. And I, and I was pre-med. So I just took it to be in the same class as her, but also because I thought it might be a good way to relax. I took an improvisation class because I was petrified that I didn't have any skill. And I thought, well, I could just, you know, improvisation will be, give me more room. And um, I had an amazing woman teacher named Tara Steppenberg. She had a different name at the time, but she would do these very new age, and this is back in the 70s, these new age guided fantasies. You're out in the field and you're meeting with people you've never met before and you're walking towards a river, things like that. Well, one day she did this meditation about seeing a door, an elevator door, the door opens, you get on, you go up into your subconscious, wherever that up was, and the door opens and you come out into the room and then you're in the room with all the other rest of the class. And so we had this crazy improvisation and, you know, there were various characters running around the room and birds squawking and, you know, whatever people's fantasies were. And I just remember looking down at a certain point and realizing, holy shit, I have a body. <laughs> I was not very athletic. Um, and I was on the crew team and stuff, but feeling my whole body in that way was so enormously shocking to me. And I, I really do remember that moment like it was yesterday. And so that gave me an appetite for discovering something that I didn't know anything about. You know, like most men, I look in the mirror to shave or not shave or comb my hair or whatever. And it, you see from the chest up, well, that was my image of myself. And so suddenly I had a new image and I had to deal with it. So, And then you were the first male dancer in the Trisha Brown Dance Company. That must have been right. kind of an experience. Well, Skip, I mean, let, just go, let's go back a step. So in that first semester, Steve Paxton, who invented contact improvisation, came to Hampshire College and I took his workshop. And in that improvisational workshop, I began to develop a personal vocabulary at the encouragement of Stephen Lisa Nelson. Right in the very beginning of my dancing, I was making movement choices that were about my nature. And that really continued all through my college years. And then when I got to New York, I decided I was going to be a dancer and I met Trisha Brown. And it was amazing to be in a room with one of the most sophisticated bodies in New York and one, one of the most funny, witty people I know. I always describe myself as a sweating, snorting, hairy animal in the midst of these very finely honed <laughs> women who were just so subtle and, and beautiful. And I'm very grateful they let me stay around for a while. 
<laughs> well, we met at a dinner after a lecture at New York University, remember, in a program oh. moderated by Melissa Ratcliffe, who curated the exhibition and wrote the catalog for Inventing Downtown, artist-run galleries from 1952 to 1965. And then it was the Bloodlines Project, when your company performed Merce Cunningham's iconic piece, Rainforest, that I really first came to know your work. Perhaps you can describe the genesis of Bloodlines. Okay, well, let me just say that, you know, so my company, Stephen Petronio Company, is almost 40 years old. We founded it so that I could create, produce, and tour my own work. And then around the 30th anniversary, Merce Cunningham, who had been an inspiration and a fixture in the dance world. I mean, when I came, he was already an older, an elder in the field. And so he was always there. He passed away, and then Trisha Brown, who was my mentor, became incapacitated, and then uh, she became gravely ill, and then eventually passed away. So these two iconic figures in my life, who I had looked up to, and I guess in some ways modeled my, my desires for how to produce and deliver dance, they both were gone. And it was just so shocking to me that I didn't really know how to um, how to process it? My first instinct was to to pull them closer to me. The idea of sharing resources for other choreographers' work was a very foreign idea, and I thought I'm going to bring their work into my. I'm going to ask them if I can license <laughs> their work and uh, and see if see what happens. I remember sitting on my porch. I had moved out of Manhattan and was living in the country. I was sitting on my porch, looking at this field, thinking. Do you dare do this? I mean, you've been to Stephen Petronio Company, self-centered, self-motivated for 30 years. Why would you change that? And then I decided I'm going to dare to do it. So I called the Cunningham Trust and I immediately asked them for three works. And they were like, well, what do you want to start with? And I said, it's got to be rainforest. The instinct was, was selfish in a way because I couldn't let go of them. And I thought, well, how beautiful. And they've influenced me so deeply. So I thought of the idea of bloodlines, which would be to bring back significant works that have influenced me personally as a choreographer. So it's a very, very specific, narrowly curated project. And over the past eight years, it's, it's expanded a little bit, but really it was about the works that have rocked my world as a dance maker. Well, for those people who may not be familiar with Merce Cunningham's work. They would not know how difficult it is to actually learn Cunningham if you don't know it. And so, of course, there's the movie, If the Dancer Dances, written and directed and produced by Lisa Friedman and Maya Wetzler. Perhaps you could talk about what it was like making that movie, which was really a documentary on your company learning the Merce Cunningham piece. Sure. Well, let me just say, let me say that in the history of uh, the lineage from Merce Cunningham to Trisha Brown to me, Merce has a very specific technique that engages the muscles almost in an opposite way that Trisha Brown does. Merce's lines are held, extended and held in space, and there's a certain kind of engagement the muscles must do to perform that well. And in Trisha's work, it's a letting go of that musculature to allow flow through the body. And so where I come in in the historical march is combining that extension of held line with the fluidity that I learned from Trisha. So my dancers, although they have to make very, very strident lines in space, 
are all about letting go. It seemed like an interesting fit. And everyone thought, oh, my dancers will do it very easily. But make no mistake, it was not easy. And having to find this, even a simple concept, for example, stillness. When you're still in a Cunningham work, nothing holds your breath, nothing moves. And in my work, there's a momentum going into it and momentum coming out of it. So stillness is a very different thing. So my dancers really had to learn to stop. Sounds mundane, but it's very difficult to learn to stop when you're about motion. I was very lucky. I, you know, we got, we got Rainforest and I chose it because it was a collaboration between Tudor and Andy Warhol and Merce. I, I just felt that it was the iconic bringing together of contemporary art forms. And that's kind of the lineage that Trisha passed to me. And I just felt if we're going to start anywhere with bloodlines, we, we must start with Rainforest. Pulling off the hardest. <laughs> it also, I was very interested for Bloodlines and works from the 60s and 70s. I thought that was an interesting seed for the project, like kind of the uh, DNA of, the, of where I've come from. Yeah. Lise and Maya were making a film about reconstruction of Mercer's work leading up to his centennial. And I just happened to be there and I knew Lise from, she was a dancer in Merce Cunningham's work and she became a dance writer and then. We had done several projects together, and I actually used one of her books as a text for one of my ballets, for the Ballet de Lorraine. So we had a rapport. I was very comfortable with her. I thought it might be embarrassing to let them in because we didn't, none of us knew what it was going to be like. And I was letting go of my dancers for the first time and giving them over to the master choreographer. And, you know, and I was thinking, oh, my God, they're going to be comparing Merce to me now. I mean, it was all, I did it intuitively, and it was very frightening in the end. Very exciting. And we all grew an enormous amount from it. Well, it's such a wonderful documentary because it really gives you a sense of the life of a dancer too. And to to be in the kitchen with one of the dancers preparing their breakfast and talking about what they're going to go through during rehearsal that day. You've collaborated with artists, musicians, performers, fashion designers. You know, I thought perhaps you could describe a little of that process. I know in the case of Merce Cunningham, everything was created designed individually. So the dancers had not practiced to the sound or the audio or necessarily seen the costumes. And I was reminded walking through the Willie Smith exhibition at the Cooper Hewitt of his work with Bill T. Jones and Arnie Zane and Diane McIntyre, the interweaving of high and low culture. So what is it like, that process of collaborating with fashion people and designers and musicians. Well, it's pure fun. I mean, how lonely is it just to be hanging around people that do the same thing that you do? I mean, all dancers want to do is make stuff and then get massaged. So, you know, so it's like, you know, we talk about our aches and pains and stuff. When you're in the world, I'm an Aries, so I'm very much interested in everything everywhere. To bring an audience together that is from the visual arts world and from the music world and from the fashion world and from the poetry world, from multiple, am I forgetting anything? Because people always forget dance. I, I, I know, I know. To me, it makes the room much more lively. And unlike Merce, I do as much as I can engage with my collaborators. And it always starts with the movement or it usually starts with a title. And so everybody has the title and then we begin to riff on that. And then... They often come in, the collaborators often come in. And a lot of times we lock horns and I, I like a good fight. So 
fire sign. So it's very important to me <laughs> to, uh, to have a good rumble while you're making something. It just makes our lives less hermetic and insular. And so that's, and that's the tradition I was raised in. And that's the tradition I love. Yeah, I've noticed recently, Stephen, perhaps encouraged by the pandemic, that creatives are not staying in one lane. Filmmakers are publishing books of poetry. Musicians are painting. It's like one from column A, one from column B. And and I was reading the Financial Times recently, and they were talking about the performances at Freeze in London or Art Basel in, in Miami. What is this meant for dance? These people are sort of going into another another space, but there's a lot of movement in it. Has this has this brought more attention to dance or has it appreciation? It's very hard to say. I mean, it, we're, the world is in chaos. I mean, between a pandemic, our racial inequity and social injustice and our healthcare system collapsing and the stock market zooming around in crazy ways while many people are, can't eat. I mean, it's a, it's a real crazy, it's a crazy moment. And the thing that we do as dancers is we show up in a public space in a very intimate way together and perform for people. And that was ripped away from us. So my instinct, my feet just kept moving. You mentioned earlier, I was in Ohio. We were in a residency at the Akron Center for Choreography. And we were planning to reconstruct some of my right of spring called Full Half Wrong. And we were very excited to have creative time together. And the, slowly, the campus began dwindling. The, the population began dwindling. And we're looking out the window, and the first day, people are running around, going to lunch and doing their thing. And then the second day, it was like a time-lapse film. There's like half as many people. And then there's a quarter of many people. And then there's nobody. And it suddenly seemed like The Walking Dead or something, you know? And we were determined to stay and then all the restaurants shut down and we had to, we had to leave. We had like 12 hours notice. So we were ripped away from each other doing exactly what we were meant to be doing. It was like from 100% to zero. And that tearing was very vicious. And so, of course, I came back up to the retreat in Catskill, which is very safe and very protected and very isolated. But the dancers were scattered across Brooklyn and Queens and lower Manhattan. And we just tried to... My instinct was to keep my feet moving. And so we started doing Zoom classes right away. And, I, and then I began making movement. It's the thing we all know and love, and it's how we get our meaning. So I began making movement with the dancers just so we didn't lose our minds, honestly. And, and, and I'm not, that's not an expression. That's, we needed that. And then it was pretty good. So then we made a video called Hashtag Give Me Shelter, set to the Rolling Stones song. And then we began making films. So you know, it was kind of a natural evolution, but is it what I would have done? I mean, am I glad that I made some films? Sure. Am I, am I a filmmaker? I'm a choreographer who started making films because he had to. So I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. It really, there's no, I don't really have an answer. Although I have written a great deal in my life. So I wrote a memoir called Confessions of Emotion Addicts. And so, I, you know, I have experience writing and publishing and we were heading into the Joyce, our, our spring season. And so that didn't have, it disappeared. So that absence felt very poignant. And, but we did the photo shoot before the pandemic. So we had the photos and I was journaling through the pandemic. So I thought it would be at least a way to mark what we lost. That's where Anthem Sentry came from. 
You just mentioned diversity and your company has been diverse. I know Merce Cunningham usually had perhaps one black dancer at a time. It seems though that dance has an opportunity to break barriers between form and identity, race, sexuality, and create intimacy. Are you finding that now perhaps there will be more diversity in dance? Well, look around. I think it's, there's been an explosion of uh, a rush to uh, to right the wrongs that have existed in, in, in terms of inequity in, in the dance world. I mean, I'm a white male choreographer over 60. And so how did I get where I am? I used to say it was half luck, half talent, half stupid stubbornness, and 90% privilege. Now, that's, that's added to the... To the to the, the privilege is added to the conversation because we, you know, I'm now aware of it. So I think we're working. I mean, I know personally, I'm working very hard to undo my stupidity and ignorance and, and try to find a more equitable space. I mean, I had, I've had dancers of color in my company my whole career because I'm an Italian American who loves the being on the street and that's New York to me, but I am still a white man in control of it. The power structure of my company has been largely white-led until now. So we're looking, you know, we're, we're, now we have the opportunity to correct. It's very exciting. I have a lot of, a lot of I feel stupid in many ways, uh, but I'm determined not to let that stop me from moving forward. Hopefully, we can learn how to, how to progress as a dance culture. Up at the uh, Petronio Residency Center, we founded this residency center to to support the next generation of dancers. And so even in the Bloodlines project, everyone except Rudy Perez is white. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm bringing back these, these work and prominent works of white choreographers. I realized that Rudy was, Rudy was a man of color who was singular in that, in that uh, Judson movement. So it was uh, important to bring him in and very exciting to bring him in. And now we're doing Bloodlines Future. So I'm really looking towards changing the, the skin palette of the future generation that I'm associated with. I'm so glad you've mentioned the residency, Stephen, because I think there are so many residencies and retreats for, as usual, as you say, dancers, usually writers, visual artists, musicians, and yet not for dancers where a choreographer can bring the dancers and have the space to actually work. I mean, it's one of the only kinds of residencies in the country, isn't it? There's a handful, but I'm one of, it's one of the few artists run. It was founded by an artist, so I know exactly what. I'm sympathetic, let me just put it that right. way. And so I've been to a lot of residency programs, the Web Center and the Atlantic Center for the Arts, and they've all, you know, they were all really interesting and awakening for me into what, what this could be. I set my goal really high, I wanted to treat it for the Petronio Residency Center. The idea was to treat the dancers like they're superstars. And so they come in, they get a stipend, they get uh, three organic meals a day by a chef. I've had one of those meals and I have to say, Stephen, they're pretty wonderful. You know, people have argued with me about those meals for a long, you know, oh, no, why no, do you no, have no, to have no. such good meals? I mean, are you kidding? You have to have good uh, I know, meals. you have dancers, to have good food. First of all, dancers... 
their life in the in the field is a, is a potentially short one, and they don't really make a lot. They often in modern dance they don't make a lot of money. They don't get a lot of glory. So oftentimes they're anonymous. So my goal is to treat them as superstars. Yeah, and so that that's kind of the model. We're on 170 something acres. Just recently, the Doris Duke Foundation gave us a very significant grant to put half of our property into conservancy. So, uh, so 77 of our 170 acres is now uh, the Doris Duke Preserve, Round Top, New York. And it will be forever protected, forever wild, and no matter what happens to the Petronio Residency Center. And I plan for it to move forward well after me. That piece of land, which is attached to the Catskill Preserve, is protected for all time. And I've done a lot of good things in my life. I've made some great friends. I've worked with incredible artists from Cindy Sherman to uh, Anish Kapoor to Yoko Ono. But saving this piece of land feels gigantic to me. So I'm very grateful to the Doris Duke Foundation. And you can, if you're in residency here, you can come and walk through a preserve. Dance and poetry are two arts that do not, perhaps by their nature, demand attention. In my short fuse conversation with Kyle de Cunyon, a poet and director of the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, we talked about the affinity between poetry and dance. Poetry is carried in the body, and Kyle commented that some of his favorite writers are dancers because the rhythmic mechanics of poetry first come from the body. It's one of the reasons I've always loved dance and, and the fact that you can't own it, that you must be in the moment to experience and feel it. It's, it's not an asset that you can mount on the wall. Well, the asset that you can have is your memory. And yes. the things that touch you deeply don't leave you. So you can own it in a, in a very private way, but you can't buy it. Mm. Part of the reason that there's an affinity, which I haven't thought of this before, but they circumvent the narrative storytelling rational part of our brain. And that's why I'm drawn to it because I, I don't, I'm not happy unless I'm slightly off kilter when I'm watching a dance. I mean, if I know what's going to happen, you know, I mean, I mean, there's something satisfying about knowing that a dancer is going to jump up on the high note and land on the bass, but there's also something surprising and delicious about landing on the high note and going up on the bass and, and going sideways on the high. You know, the interruption of expectation is part of the, of the delight of movement. And the rational mind can't grab it like it wants to grab everything. And I think that's very, very exciting and really good for your, for your, for your soul. I know you have, we have in the episode notes, Stephen, some of the places that you're going to be, but perhaps you can talk about what's coming up. Well, you know, the company usually works 20 to 30 weeks a year. We're not doing any national or international touring. It's all New York focused. We have three very significant gigs that are coming up uh, if all goes well, and we're all counting on all going well. <laughs> so we're starting, we're opening uh, our season. October 15th and 16th at Fall for Dance at City Center, which I'm, I've been there a number of times. It's an amazing theater. I'm doing American Landscapes. The music is Joseph Van Wysum in collaboration with the, uh, Jim Jarmusch, who's also a filmmaker. And then Robert Longo, the great 
visual artist and a contemporary of mine has done the visual design, Ken Tabachnik, who's also the executive director of the Merce Cunningham Trust, has been my longtime collaborator in lighting design. So that's our work. We made it a couple of years ago, one of my favorite new works. And so we're showing that. I'm thrilled about that. And then we move on to La Mama in November, I think middle, the middle of November. We, and I've never, I grew up in the East Village. I've never played La Mama. I'm thrilled they invited me. So we're doing smaller works. We're doing solos and duets and we're calling them punk selections from the 90s. Yeah, I so they're um, nice title. I do often in my career, I'll do a more popular music, short form prelude to a longer abstract work. And I do it for a number of reasons. I think those, those little songs are a flavor key to the rest of the work and for a way to look, a, kind of a lens to look at it through. I also do it because the dance world does not like pop popular music in a certain way. And so it irritates the dance world in general. And I find that kind of interesting. As hard for me as doing Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. I mean, you got to get your job done in a very short form and it's, it's exciting. But then the last thing we're doing is we're going back to the Joyce Theater in the spring, which I've been there for many years. It's the second home to me. I was the first artist in residence there. They've, been, they've, they've had all my work over my whole career. So we'll be doing uh, a new work called New Prayer for Now. And uh, this is a, a newsflash. I'm in, in discussions with the Young People's Chorus of New York, who I've collaborated with many times in terms of uh, singing on, in music for the company, but they've asked me to make a, a movement company for the chorus. And so I'm going to uh, try my hand at making a small work for a, a group of singers that want to be dancers. And hopefully that's going to premiere as an opening to our season of the joy. So. Oh, that sounds really wonderful, Stephen. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation and I thank you for your time. Great to talk to you. I love talking to you. Bye. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.